just a life-changing event. We know that what Jesus did at the cross was amazing. Um, but even in his dying on the cross, he left us with so many final lessons uh, that we can take and apply to our life today. And uh, I'm excited about it. So if you will turn with me to John chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. We are going to read about some specific words of Jesus. It says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. It's a lot of Marys in one spot right there. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. All right, guys, everybody say woman. Woman, behold thy son. Son. Now, the Bible tells us that they all had a name, Mary. Maybe he said woman. There was a lot of Marys there. He's in the process of dying. He needed to make sure he got the word across to the right one. But it's interesting that he says, woman, behold thy son. And those are the words that we're going to look at today. So even in dying, Jesus was concerned about Mary. He was concerned about the women that were there at the cross. And if you look throughout his ministry, Jesus was always concerned and inclusive of everyone men and women in his ministry. He was the first rabbi that we really can see and read about that actually taught and trained women. He really did. And this is more common today, but if you look back at the time, Jesus was revolutionary in the way that he approached women and training and everything that he was doing at the time. So a little bit of background. The value system of people in the Bible was very different than it is today. It was very different. And I am so thankful that we live in the U.S. in the 21st century. I had to think about that for a second. In the 21st century, because you know what? It is, it's better. God bless America. We need to keep this thing rolling as long as we can because it is a really great place to live. But that was not the case throughout history, and that definitely was not the case in the Bible when you, when you read through it. Yes, women were oppressed, but also we know that slavery was common practice. Death for legal punishment was rampant and quickly executed. Like two-day trial, and then we're going to get this thing wrapped up. We're going to get this crucifixion going uh, same week. Suppression was not only common, but expected in a class-based system. So being a woman during biblical times, surprise, was not a fast track to political or social success. Just really wasn't. And although there wasn't much of a support system, we can see that all throughout the Bible... Women were very instrumental in God's plans. He always had a plan, and he always wanted his church to be in a certain way. So, in honor of Women's History Month, let's look at a few great biblical women before Jesus' earthly ministry even begun. So let's start with Rahab. Rahab uh, was a woman that, she was, she was a great example of a, of a great woman. Rahab was a resident of the city of Jericho, during the time when the nation of Israel was coming in and conquering land uh, in, the, uh, in the promised land. So she was not part of the nation of Israel. But what happens is she's in a city, and in the city she hears about this nation that God is blessing, and they're coming in, and they're taking over all of this land. And so she recognizes that, hey, if God is with them, they're going to do whatever they're going to do, right? So I'm going to make sure I align myself, I'm gonna align myself with God as fate would have it. A few of the Israeli spies jump into the city of Jericho. And Jericho's a great place if you ever get a chance. Been there? You should totally check it out. <laughs> um, 
They sneak into the city of Jericho, and she, she actually hides them from the residents. And she's like, I'm going to hide them, but I'm not just going to hide you. I need you to do something for me. And so she actually negotiates with the spies and tells them that when you come in and you take this city, because I believe in God, God's going to do it, I need you to save me and my family. That takes a lot of guts and a lot of boldness. And so we can see early on in the Old Testament, before the children of Israel even have uh, full control of the promised land, Rahab was a woman who did whatever it took to align herself with God first and then make sure that her family was saved. It's a powerful example, but it doesn't stop there. I'm going to tell you, there's four women. This is one, so there's three more. So that way you don't think we're going to be here all day. (laughs) We move on in history, and we see another amazing woman by the name of Deborah. And Deborah we don't read a whole lot about, but we know in Judges chapter 4 that she was a great leader and a great judge in the nation of Israel. But the time that she comes onto the scene, just chaos is happening. So just imagine chaos. Uh, there is a king of Cana who wants to come in and destroy the children of Israel. And the children of Israel at this moment believe that that's going to happen. So they're like, yeah, this guy's going to probably come in and destroy us. And Deborah, we see, who rises up and she goes, it says she goes up under a palm tree and she starts judging. She starts bringing calm to the situation. Thank God for men and women who can bring calm to a situation. Because sometimes that stuff is contagious, man. Chaos is contagious. And we read about Deborah who's stepping up and she's like, it's going to be okay. She calms everybody down. She gets together with Barak and they go out and they win this mighty victory. You can read about it in Judges chapter 4. But she's a great early example of a biblical woman who was able to see the chaos, bring calm to the situation, and demonstrate great leadership skills in the presence of adversity. All right, we're moving on to Ruth. Ruth has her own book in the Bible, which is awesome. You you, you can spend a lot of time on Ruth, so I'll just quickly summarize. Uh, Ruth was an outsider. She was not born to God's people necessarily, but when her own husband died, she stuck with uh, her mother-in-law, and she goes back and she becomes part of God's kingdom, kind of like by annex, meaning like she wasn't born. It wasn't easy for her, but when things were looking down and she was all alone, here's the takeaway. She chose to stick with God and his plan. That's really the takeaway. Even when her own family had all passed away, she was just, she seemed like an outsider. She didn't feel like she belonged. She didn't feel like she could be uh, anything great for the kingdom of God. She just stayed, and she was faithful to God's plan, and she trusted in God without evidence, right? Really without a whole lot of evidence. And sometimes that's for us today. If we can keep trusting in God, even when we don't have that clear picture Ruth is a great example that everything is going to be okay. God used Ruth. She was great in her time, but her great-grandson would be King David. And we know that King David was probably the greatest king in Israel's history that did so many great things. But because of her faithfulness, I'm going to need somebody up here on this organ. Because of her faithfulness and her consistency, her whole generations after her were blessed to do the great things and the great works for the kingdom of God. And that's a message for us today. If we're faithful and if we're just and we stick with God even when it doesn't feel right, even when we can't see the evidence, there's no telling what he can do. So I'm thankful for Ruth, who is the third of the four women that we are going to talk about. She had vision beyond her circumstances, and she trusted in God when most others would have quit trying. And then the last one is Esther. Ruth gave birth to a king. Esther just decided she was going to be the queen. So she just took, she just took it on herself. I got this myself. And Esther was a Jew who was exiled to Persia. And uh, we, we know the story of Esther. If you don't, 
again, a whole book of the Bible. But the, the takeaway from Esther when we look at this is she overcame adversity. She became the queen of a nation and then single-handedly was the political player who saved tens of thousands of Jewish people who were about to be killed. That's a lot of pressure on a young lady. That's a lot of pressure on anybody. Um, but we see that she stepped up and she did what she had to do in a time when it was not convenient and in a time when she had great insecurity about the work that God was calling her to do. And so she's a great example um, of a woman who was capable of not just stepping in and leading, but also saving and preserving an entire nation. And so one thing you notice about all four of these women that we just, just so deeply and perfectly covered <laughs> in deeper waters uh, is that they rose up against difficult circumstances, which is important, but they also rose up against a system and a societal system that was not in their favor. And so I'll tell you, it's one thing to rise up against circumstances. It's another thing to rise up when somebody's pushing you down. And this is basically what you see with these four women. And we know already today, spoiler, spoiler alert, we know that women are great leaders, that women have no inherent trait flaws that prevent them from greatness. We know this, but at the time, that was not common knowledge. But one thing you don't see a lot of in the Old Testament is women ministering to the Jewish people. You don't see them preaching the gospel, as it were, in the Old Testament. And why do we think that is? The, the laws were so against that. Why do we think that is? You don't have to answer, I'll tell you. <laughs> Women weren't allowed to minister, but most men weren't allowed to minister either. I don't know if you know that or not. But under the law of Moses, sin was equal to death. And this was all thanks to the original sin in the garden. And there was no greater force on earth and sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us that when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everybody because that everybody had sinned. So what are we going to do? Sin's in the world. It's running rampant. All we can do is prevent the spread of sin, prevent the spread. Of, this sounds kind of like the whole coronavirus, right? Prevent the spread of sin. We got to prevent it. We can't stop it. We're just going to do everything we can to prevent it. That's actually not a bad example. It's very similar to that. We just got to keep it out there so that way it doesn't get in here. Because if it gets in here, what are we going to do? And so enter the law. The law was 613 commandments of what not to do. So it's a lot of what not to do's right there. And the law of Moses was designed to hold sin as far away as possible to keep its full effect from devastating God's people. And so what, is it like women bearing the brunt of this? No, it's not that at all. Gentile men couldn't minister either. If I was to go back in Bible days and try to walk into the temple, it, it'd probably go very poorly for me as a, as a Gentile man with no priestly lineage that I know of. Wouldn't that be something, right? <laughs> Found out I was part of a priestly lineage. Anyway, I'm, I'm very confident that's not the case. So sin is running rampant and only specific people can actually minister during this time because we have to make sure that sin doesn't spread in and sin isn't just you know, just overtaking the people. And so this, this was how specific the law was in the Old Testament, that only specific people, the high priest, would enter into the tabernacle at a set time once a year to offer sacrifices of atonement for all of the people. And listen to this. Tradition says that when the high priest went into the holiest of holies on Yom Kippur, during the last couple centuries of the temple, a scarlet rope was tied to his foot. And so a priest in the holy, holy place 
tended to the other side of this rope. So like if I was going in, we've already established that I can't go in. Uh, I don't know. Let's say Mark, I'm going to use you as an example. Mark's the high priest. Mark was going in. I would, I would be standing outside of the holy place. We'd tie a rope to his foot just in case anything went wrong and he died in there. We could pull him out. That's how specific it was about who could minister and who could go in and offer atonement uh, during the times of the tabernacle and during the times uh, of the holy, of the temple. So guess what comes with that type of a situation? Guess what comes with sin all around, very specific people can only minister at very specific times. Uh, strict laws come. Law of sin and death, the Bible talks about, meaning that sin equals death. So we've got to make sure that sin doesn't come in. Specific qualifications to minister and subsequently suppression of anybody who doesn't meet those strict qualifications. Um, because think about it. If it was your family that was being, the high priest was going in to offer sins for your family, I'm not trying to be inclusive. I want the one person who's not going to go in there and die to offer the sacrifice, right? Like, I need you to make sure you've got everything together because I don't want you to go in there and mess this up because this is my one time a year. And so you had this real specific uh, ministry qualifications that excluded anybody, male or female, who was not part of that priestly lineage to go in and offer the sacrifice. But specifically, the law limited women outside of ministering, possibly, we don't necessarily know this for sure, but possibly because they were all reminded that this whole process of atonement and forgiveness was all a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And Eve takes the brunt of this because we know that she was the first one to eat the apple. Um, but Adam also ate of the apple as well. But hey, let's blame Eve for it all, I guess. Uh, and the message was this, the past mistakes weren't forgotten or completely atoned for. Because we know that in the Old Testament, sins weren't completely forgiven, right? They were just kind of atoned and pushed off for another year. And that's the same thing today. If we're trying to live a life with our past mistakes just constantly being over us and constantly just hanging on to us, it's, it's a hard life. There's a lot of a weight that comes from that. And so for years and years, we read in the Bible about prophets and high priests, and, and we, we hear about all of these great leaders, and the vast majority of them who are ministering, we just hear about the men who are doing it. And it's just because of sin and all of the specifics and everything that we kind of just talked about until something starts to change. And it starts to change in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. So a little bit of a backstory. Joel is not in the New Testament. Joel is very much in the Old Testament. It's, it's 500 years approximately before Jesus is ever born. So we're still in this time of this really strict law, trying to keep sin at bay. Only specific people can minister. It's under this time. And we see that Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 tells us that something is about to change. And it doesn't just say he. Up until this point, the Bible is not gender inclusive. It's really not. It's mostly always he, men, right? You hear about this a lot. And Joel says this, that this was a word that came to him. And he's prophesying about the future. And he says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes on and he says, and upon your servants and upon your handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. This is revolutionary stuff because this doesn't just include male and female. It also includes servants and handmaids people who are probably not of the priestly lineage, people who are probably like you and me, who just want a relationship with God, but man, it looks kind of complicated. And this is a prophecy that God has given through Joel. And so when Jesus 
walks onto the scene, he starts acting like this is the truth, and we see this just huge switch. Why do you think people wanted to like crucify Jesus all the time? He was going against everything that they held as sacred. He was going against things that weren't necessarily biblical, but he was going against the traditions of men. And he was just like, yeah, just your traditions are great, but I'm, that's not actually how it's going to be in the future. And we see the sharp contrast on how he approaches men and women. They are among his trusted disciples. He goes out of his way to heal, teach, and include them. It's not just women that Jesus includes. It's also other oppressed, unacceptable individuals like tax collectors, Samaritans, low-income workers, sinners, male, female. He doesn't care. Servants, handmaidens. He's, he's, he's treating all of these people like they can be something great for his kingdom. And, you know, we can easily lose sight of just how radical that really was at the time. But when Jesus died on the cross, and we're talking about the seven things that Jesus said on the cross, when he died on the cross, it wasn't just to break the bonds of sin. It was also to break the stereotypes and the traditions of who could access the kingdom of heaven and who could lead others to access the kingdom of heaven. And Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 tells us exactly that. It says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I'm thankful I belong to him this morning. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. What a great hope that we have in Romans chapter 8. What a great hope. I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't just die to forgive my sins, but he also made a way for me to have access to the throne, for me to be able to directly reach out and pray and know that he hears. There's no more regulation on who can access the kingdom of heaven. There's no more male, female, priestly lineage, Gentiles from Kansas City, which is where most of us probably would fit. We can all access the kingdom of heaven this morning, and we can all lead others to share in that exact same experience. Jesus had a vision for that perfect church. He had a vision for a church that was going to be made in his image. That was his whole entire point. He wanted a church that was like that. And in his mind and in his perfect church, he was going to have men and women ministering side by side differently. Thank God men and women are different. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? You're not going to change. We, we, we don't need women ministering like men and men ministering like women. You know, we, we, we're all different. But his vision was that everybody would be able to come together without inhibition, without fear, and be able to share what, what he has for his church. And, and uh, look, men's conference, ladies' conferences are coming up. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a men's only or a women's only conference. They are, they are not a bad thing at all. Like, you can go. One of my favorite things about men's conference, you get to go. You get to hang out with the guys. Uh, usually eat a lot of food. Um, great, great. It's a, good, it's a good time. God moves. Lives are changed. Same, I've never been to a women's conference, but from what I hear, <laughs> the one's coming up. There's a plug. Um, they sound awesome. Look, I'm going to give you some insight into a men's conference. I, it's just my view. It take, it's, there's something missing. 
at a men's conference in the services. Uh, so men worship God in a real specific way. It takes a little bit for things to kind of loosen up in a men's conference. It's usually a little tight, and then the altar calls are a little short, and there's a lot of, uh, there's just something off. There's something a little bit missing there. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's the ladies. There's no ladies, in the, there's no ladies at the men's conference, and something just feels, <laughs> just feels a little bit different. This is, this is my view. And that's because there's nothing wrong with going to a men's conference, but God's perfect church isn't men worshiping here and women ministering there. It's, it's men and women ministering and worshiping together. That's his perfect church. That's what he wants to see. And here at Refuge Church, we strive for that. You're going to hear some amazing women preachers, and you're going to hear some amazing and some average men speakers. <laughs> you're going to hear some great men and women singers. You're going to hear all of that stuff because that is really what God embodied and what he wanted as he was dying on the cross. He was saying, you know what? I know that things were different then, but what the future is going to be is going to be something where everybody can come together. Men, women, servants, handmaidens, and I'm going to pour out my spirit. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, as I wrap this up, says, and I will put enmity. This is right after the fall of Adam and Eve. Eve has eaten of the apple that God told her not to, the fruit that God has told her not to eat of. Sin has entered into the world. And he's talking to her and he says, I will put enmity between thee. And he's talking, actually, I'm sorry. He's talking to the serpent right here. Let me get this straight. He's talking to the serpent who has just beguiled Eve. And he's saying, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman. Everybody say the woman. We did this earlier. And between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. See, God knew what he was talking about. Enmity between sin and mankind has been well documented. We just talked a little bit about it. Uh, it has been well documented. There is, there's a conflict constantly between humankind and between sin. And he's, he prophesied this at the very beginning. And the woman that God referred to would be, was Eve, and she was going to bear the heaviness of that sin that just happened. And through childbirth and through generation after generation, Sin was going to pass to all mankind and that everybody would be under the weight of sin. Every single person would be under the weight of sin. And if you're here today and you feel the weight of sin, guess what? Join the crowd, right? Every single person, except for one person, except for Jesus. And we know that Jesus was spotless without sin. And as he hung on the cross, fast forward all these years later, he's hanging on the cross. John chapter 19, verse 26 says that he says again, Again, he says, woman, behold thy son. The same terminology. He knew Eve's name. He knew Mary's name. But why, why is he saying woman both times? Why is he referring to it? It's not derogatory. It's not a derogatory statement. But perhaps there was some prophetic fulfillment in these words. As he's hanging on the cross, he's referencing all the way back to the woman, Eve, right, who got this whole thing started with sin in the garden. And now he's looking down at Mary, and he's saying, woman, Behold thy son. Behold that person that was prophesied way back in Genesis, right? That was going to take sin and that was going to crush its head and that was going to give humanity salvation. And you know what? Maybe through Eve, sin entered the world, but through Mary, salvation entered the world. And that prophecy was fulfilled. And you know what? He would go on to say, it's finished. Basically, it's done. Everything that happened in the past, all of that, you know what? That's over now. But there's new hope in me. There's new hope in Jesus. So as we stand this morning and we get ready to move into the rest of this service, I'm so thankful for every prophetic word that Jesus spoke on the cross. But you know what? I'm thankful that 2,000 years after this, what Jesus did can apply to us today. 
male, female, sinner, saint, it don't matter. He actually crushed sin on the cross that day. Doesn't mean that sin doesn't exist, but now we have direct access to him and whatever we've brought in today, he can say it's forgiven and we can be washed white as snow. And I'm so thankful for his presence. What a great, great God that we serve. So let's lift our hands. Let's invite him to have his way in the rest of the service. Jesus, we thank you so much for everything that you accomplished on the cross. Jesus, we thank you for your presence.